Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 243. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 16 through 19 and follow with some thoughts about what happens when you defy the divine. Chapter 16 thrusts us right into the action. War between Israel and Judah and the breaking of a monopoly. King Basha of the north starts building Ramah as an alternate site for worship, so Israelites wouldn't need to make their way to Jerusalem to near offer and bring their temple tax money and walking around money and spending money and room and board money. And so King Asa of Judah makes a pact with Ben-Hadad, king of the Arameans, in exchange for a hefty fee. Quote, there is a pact between you and me and between my father and your father. Look, I have sent you silver and gold. Go revoke your pact with Basha, king of Israel, and he withdraw from me. So the Arameans attack Israel, and construction at Ramah stops. And then, quote, King Asa took all Judah, and they bore off the stones of Ramah and its timbers with which Basha had built, and with them he built Geva and Mitzpah. So it seems Asa has won this round, but Hanani the seer has some words for the Judahite king, admonishing him for trusting in Aramean kings when he should be trusting in God. And thus, quote, you have been foolish in this, for from now on you will have wars. For this Asa has Hanani thrown into stocks, and quote, Asa abused some of the people at that time. Which gets him the chronicler treatment, quote, and look, the early and late acts of Asa are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Oh dear me, how are the mighty fallen? But we're not done with Asa. He comes down with a foot ailment. But instead of seeking out God, he consults physicians, which results in... And, quote, they buried him in his tomb that he had dug in the city of David. And they laid him out in his resting place, which was filled with the spices of various kinds, compounded by the perfumer's art, and they lit a very great fire for him. Chapter 17 brings us Jehoshaphat, heir to the throne of Judah, and, quote, he became strong over Israel. He manages this because, quote, Adonai was with Jehoshaphat, for he walked in the former ways of David his father, and did not seek the Baalim, but the God of his fathers he sought, and by his commands he walked, not like the acts of Israel. What's more, Jehoshaphat endorses a serious program of Jewish learning. He enlists a priestly corps of educators to go forth and, quote, They taught in Judah, and with them was the book of Adonai's teaching, and they went round in all the towns of Judah and taught among the people which has profound political ramifications as well. Quote, As the terror of Adonai was upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round Judah, and they did not do battle with Jehoshaphat. And you say, please, please, it's too much winning. Chapter 18 continues with the good times, but with the mere mention of the kingdom of the north, trouble looms. Jehoshaphat marries into the family of King Ahav, and before you could say anti-Jezebel, King Ahav entices Jehoshaphat to wage war against the Arameans at Ramot Gilad. But Jehoshaphat is not so quick to muster the troops. Quote, inquire, pray this day, the word of Adonai. So Ahav gathers 400 court prophets and poses the question to them. And they say, Yes, queen! Yes, queen! Yes, queen! Well, Jehoshaphat is not convinced. Quote, Is there still here any prophet of Adonai that we might inquire of him? Ahav says, Yeah, there is this one guy, but quote, I hate him. 
For he does not prophesy good about me, but all his days evil. He is Michayahu, son of Imla. So this Michayahu is summoned to the court, and the eunuch who accompanies him tells him, quote, Look, the words of the prophets with one mouth are good for the king. Let your word, pray, be like one of them, and you should speak good things. Michayahu is unmoved, quote, As Adonai lives, that which my God says I will speak. So here we are at the entrance to the gate of Israel's capital, Samaria. Yehoshaphat and Ahav are each sitting on a throne dressed in royal garb, and all the king's prophets are bandying about, and here comes Michayahu. So after a little back and forth, Michayahu declares, quote, I saw all Israel scattered over the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. And Adonai said, These have no master. Let each go back home in peace. Ahav is apoplectic. Quote, Did I not say to you that he will not prophesy good about me but evil? One of Ahab's court prophets, Sidkiyahu ben Kanana, steps up and smacks Michayahu on the cheek. He's not having anyone challenge his legitimacy as a rightful prophet, as Michayahu is led away to be thrown in jail. He tells the king, quote, If you really return safe and sound, Adonai has not spoken through me. Damn! So the battle is on, and Ahab tells Yehoshaphat, quote, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you don your royal garb. Was this a sneaky trick, as Ben-Hadad tells his soldiers to specifically target the enemy king? Or was it a protective move, because Ahav knew that Aram had no beef with Judah? When the fighting rages, the Arameans, quote, swerved against him to do battle, and Jehoshaphat cried out, and Adonai aided him, and God drew them away from him. And it happened, when the commanders of the chariots saw that he was not the king of Israel, they turned back from him. But what of Ahav? Quote, a man drew the bow, unwitting and struck the king of Israel between the joints of the armor. Ahav was dead by nightfall. And as chapter 19 recounts, Yehoshaphat returns safely to his house in Jerusalem, but he is not coming home clean. Yehu ben Hanani is waiting for him with some choice words. Quote, Would you aid the wicked and love those who hate Adonai? For this there is fury against you from before Adonai. Yet good things are found with you, for you rooted out the cultic poles from the land and readied your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat begins another national project on top of his religious and educational reforms, a judicial revolution. Jehoshaphat instructs the judges, quote, See to what you are doing, for not for the sake of humankind do you judge, but for the sake of Adonai, and he is with you in matters of judgment. And now, may the fear of Adonai be upon you. Watch and do, for there is no injustice or favoritism or bribe-taking with Adonai our God. And these local magistrates all report to the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, whose jurisdiction extends from matters of criminal law, interpretation of the law, to the laws of ritual purity. Yehoshaphat concludes his mandate to the judge with the following declaration, quote, Act firmly, and may Adonai be with him who is good. Imagine that moment when you hear that your plan, your grand scheme, all of your hopes and dreams will end in total failure. What would you do? There's a story about two parents who are told by a very reliable source that their child will grow up and, well, things will end badly for the family and especially the father. This scenario, I'm sure, has played out in doctor's offices across the world when there are results from an amniocentesis or a paternity test. When it comes to eight-month-old Brian... Kiari, you are not. The instance I'm actually referring to took place in ancient Greece when King Laius of Thebes 
who was childless for many years, went to consult the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, where he learned that any son born to him would grow up to kill him. And when Jocasta indeed bore him a son, Laius tried to short-circuit the prophecy to thwart divine will by having his son's ankles pierced and tethered together so that he could not crawl. Queen Jocasta then gave the boy to a servant to abandon on a nearby mountain. However, the servant took pity on the child, and rather than leave the child to die of exposure, he gave the baby to a shepherd from Corinth, who then gave the child to another shepherd, and eventually the child, now named Oedipus, ends up in the house of Polybus, king of Corinth, and his queen Merope, who adopt him. Laius's decision to defy the gods set him on a path that would result in his own death and the ruin of his family. I would go into more details about how fate and destiny crush those who would seek to flout it, but it's a path well trod, including the plot point that so captured Freud that he named a complex after it, and though Freud's theory looms large in the culture, it is little scientific validity. But I digress. As much as one could say Sophocles' play Oedipus the King is about proper eye care, it's also a cautionary tale. For Aristotle, the great 4th century philosopher and polymath, Oedipus the king is the perfect tragedy. Oedipus is a worthy main character. The play has a complicated but not too complicated plot. And through a sequence of coincidences and unforeseeable events, Oedipus is reduced to a pitiful end because he committed a horrible deed without knowing it. No one is immune to such ruin. You or I could also make a mistake, turning the steering wheel one second too late or too early, or hitting send without that moment to review and poof, your whole life could crumble to pieces. Oh, life, be careful and be thankful. Aristotle also saw the play as a shining example of how a good person confronts adversity and in so doing brings on a feeling of catharsis, a cleansing through emotions of fear and pity. Oedipus is a man with hamartia, a fatal flaw that precipitates his downfall. For some, it's a weakness for fudge. For Oedipus, it's hubris, and it's a congenital condition. When Laius becomes aware of his son's fate, he has him dispatched to prevent its fruition. When Oedipus becomes aware of the same prophecy from the same oracle, he decides not to lean into his fate, but defy it. He pledges never to return home to Corinth, thus avoiding any confrontation with Polybus, but instead he'll head to Thebes, which is closer to Delphi, and find his fortune there. Now we all know what happens next. On the way, Oedipus comes to a spot where three roads cross, and he encounters a chariot driven by, you guessed it, his birth father, King Laius. They fight over who has the right of way, and Oedipus kills Laius. Checkmate! And the rest is tragedy. We get a similar vibe in this episode's portion. In the original account from First Kings, when the in-law kings meet to unite against Aram, Ahab opts for the disguise route and urges Jehoshaphat to do the same. Remember what preceded this moment, the oracular voice of Michayahu, a lone voice standing against all the yes prophets in Ahab's royal court. A man who takes it on the cheek before getting thrown into prison. Ahav's destiny is defeat and death, so God wills. But Ahav is not interested in that. Even before he sets out to fight, he sheds his royal costume and adopts one of a common soldier. This battle is not just about his honor, his kingdom's prestige, and military prowess. It's about determining who calls the shots, God or king. The last king to grapple with this determination also abused a prophet and ended up dying an awful death. Ahav does his darndest to avoid suffering the same fate, or at least he thinks so, 
and he will not allow his fear to overcome his sense of dignity, even if it means wearing the disguise of a commoner. I spoke of Oedipus, but there's also the story of the two Kushite servants of King Shlomo, named Elihoref and Achiah, the sons of Shisha. According to the tale recounted in Tractate Sukkah of the Babylonian Talmud, one day King Shlomo saw that the angel of death was sad. The king said to him, why are you sad? The angel of death said to him, they are asking me to take the lives of these two Kushites who are sitting here. Well, Shlomo dispatches the servants to the district of Luz, where the angel of death has no dominion. When they arrive at the district of Luz, they die. The following day, Shlomo sees that the angel of death is happy. The king says to him, why are you happy? The angel of death replies, in the place that they asked me to take them, there you sent them. It seems even why Shlomo didn't understand that you can't outrun your destiny. You can't thwart God's plan, even with your best laid plans. Ahav, like his contemporary's predecessor, didn't understand this either, and despite what he thought was a great plan that hinged on a clever disguise, it wasn't going to save him from what God intended. A fatal wound and a slow, painful demise at the hands of a random archer. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 244, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 20 through 23.